to do a better job of raising up disciples who know the Word of God. And so this is part of it. So part of me wants to just make a plug and say, even if it's a topic that isn't quite as attractive, right, or one that you think you kind of know something about, it is never a bad thing to get grounded in the Word of God. And I think it's very, very true to say that at both a biblical level and even a theological level, if you know what the difference of of those two things might be, there is an illiteracy in the church today, big time. We just are not good readers as much as, you know, when you think about uh, media, television, that's totally changed in the last three-ish generations, the way we engage with books, and the Bible's a book, right? So we just are, we have less time to read because we have more time we spend watching. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, I'm just saying that's just a reality. We also have in our culture and kind of the part of the tradition that we are in, we have felt this pressure to be so accessible, and that's not bad, but it means it's, it can turn into a level of entertainment and consumerism rather than saying, here are some core things that really disciples need to know. So I'm excited about uh, Growth Hour in general. I'm super glad that, that our kids are down there. My fourth grader was super glad for Growth Hour and I'm just, I'm just thankful that we're doing this, and it's, it's about time. We've, we've talked about doing this for a long time, then COVID uh, gave us a bit of a curveball. Let me tell you about this course. We're going to spend, we have six weeks together, but they're, n- they're not in a row, meaning we're going we're gonna to have to take a two-week break for a kind of church chat, congregational meeting uh, where you can ask questions about the budget, etc., and then also a formal congregational meeting. So what's nice about the structure we have now is we can throw in some church business right here on Sunday mornings and accomplish things and get things done. And just to do that well with what's required by the bylaws, we're going to go five weeks in this class, we're going to take a two-week break, and then we're going to come back, and it's literally just going to be a Q&A, meaning you can ask any question, and if I don't like the questions, I will just go behind the stage and then come out when you guys are quiet. But seriously because of the number of people that makes a class like this really, really hard. This class would be way better if it was 12 of us sitting around a table and we're just tons of back and forth. And, and with this many people, it's just hard to get good interaction. It, it, arguably, it's impossible, right? We have just as many people signed up for this class as we had signed up for like first service. So it's very hard for it to be dialogical. So I, so I want to preemptively say you may not be able to ask a question that you'd want to that doesn't mean you can't email me. That doesn't mean we can't sit down separately and have that conversation. Like These are really good things. These are important duties of the office of pastor. Please understand that, right? Like I have some people say, I really hate to bother you with this. I'm like, you know, you're supposed to be bothering me with this, right? Like, you're supposed to be. Like, you're, it's actually bothering the bad word. You're not bothering me when you're trying to understand God's word. And you're trying to grow in your faith. That's not bothering, right? That's part of the blessing of being the church. So if something comes up or if there's confusion or if I explain something that just led to more confusion or if you want to follow down something further, shoot me an email or, or call or whatever and we can have the conversation. So I just feel like I have to say that because our conversation is going to be limited because of the number of people. But let me read the summary of what, what I intend to do in this class. The book of Revelation has long been confused has long confused, preoccupied, and really scared Christians. The goal of this course is to remove common confusions, rescue misguided obsessions to the interpretation of the book, 
and show how it is God's beautiful gift to the church in every age. This, this course will answer key questions related to the nature, interpretation, and message of the book of Revelation. So literally, today, I'm just simply asking the question, why do people go crazy over the book of Revelation? Now, to be honest with you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit on it three main things, one of which is going to be literally our last few minutes, an overview of the entire book in this image of looking into stained glass windows of a cathedral, right? That's the metaphor I'm going to use. But, but all that to say is it's not just going to be, hey, calm down, but it's a little bit calm down, calm down. This book is beautiful. This book is meant to encourage. I remember I was teaching Intro to the New Testament. I'd been teaching probably seven or eight years at this point at Biola and at Talbot, so undergrad and graduate level. In fact, I'm teaching an intro to the New Testament at TED's in the fall, right? So I've taught this class many a times, and I had this really, really bright student. She was a sophomore. She would sit near the front all the time. So because of that, it was a class of 225 kids. So I really got to know like the first two rows, really. And I got to know this sweet young lady, and she was talking all that. She never missed a class. Homework was done with excellence, et cetera, et cetera. And then she came in to meet with me during like regular office hours, and she's like, I'm going to miss class on such and such a date. And I was like, eh, no problem. I mean, most kids, I mean, the fact that she's even telling me is pretty impressive. Most kids, it's like, well, there was like Fruity Pebbles, and I was eating them, and I just forgot to come, right? Or there's video game championship, and I just missed it, right? So, I mean, that's usually what happened. And here she comes and sets up office hours, say she's going to miss. And then I didn't even think anything of it, and I didn't look at the schedule. It happened to be the day Revelation was going to be talked about. And then she says to me, well, I probably should tell you why I'm going to miss class. You don't have to, but feel free. It's like, I don't want to learn about the book of Revelation. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, is that, is that wrong? She goes, well, I mean, not necessarily wrong. I mean, it's part of God's word. So just at a big picture sense, like he wrote this as a gift to his people to reveal truth. And God's intentions are always Good. Like, it's not like he's sinister in some way, right? Like, one of those angry fathers or, or tri- mischievous ones that say, hey, jump in, I'll catch you, and then whoop, arms away, right? You jump in, the kid's under the water. Ain't not one of those. Not one of those, well, they touch the stove and it's hot, they'll learn next time. Like, that's not our God. Like, our God is accommodating, gentle, loving, gracious. And then she just began to cry. She was so scared of this book. And I met with her literally five hours before that class. So, I mean, she did way more to earn credit for that class, right? You got a one-hour class that she wanted to miss, and she was willing to meet with me five times for an hour, where we were just almost like a counseling session to get her to be able to look at the book of Revelation. And I thought we'd come somewhere. And so the day of Revelation class, I'm literally looking for this sweet young lady. And class was starting, and her chair was empty and she just couldn't make it, which I I understand. That's where she was at. But she had, there was such a, there was such a fascination with this book in her church context, her church tradition. There was a fear and and, and scaring that had been done to her in some way that actually to her, it was, it was, it almost become a bad book. And I want to tell you, that's, that's not abnormal. That might be a little bit extreme in the sense of, you know, you're not necessarily scared of the book, like it's evil in some way, or it's going to give you nightmares. I mean, that was part of her concern was nightmares, end of the world fear kind of stuff. Uh, that was part of her issue. But there is 
an unhealthy focus on this book compared to how about the book of Philemon? So I was doing on one of the most beautiful books, by the way, talk about forgiveness, which is one of the most important topics in any marriage, parents to kids, friendship, radical forgiveness. If I were offering this class over the six weeks, would we have 130 people signed up? But we offer Revelation. Whoop, interest goes high. Why? Is it more inspired than Philemon? Is it, in God's ranking, a more important book than Philemon? And those are just things to ask. What makes this book so significant? So let me start. Let me start. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. And I'm just going to work through your notes that you have there. So you can see all my, you have a skeleton of some of the stuff that I'm going to talk around so you kind of get an idea where I'm going to go. And for each week of this class, I will bring something like this for you just to help you out. And just to make it clear, but let me pray. Father, help us just as disciples to approach your word well. And thank you for your holy word, all 66 books. In this class, we're going to focus on the last, the grand finale, the beautiful story of your power, your provision, and your person. Help us to see that this morning. Guide us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do people go crazy over the book of Revelation? I love the famous quote by the Revelation scholar Aaron Rodgers. Quarterback for my team, nemesis, the Green Bay Packers, win a couple years ago. The Packers looked like they were having a bad start, and he gets to an interview, and he just says one word, relax. That's all he said. And literally, this future Hall of Famer just decided to show he, he wasn't joking. Like, I think there needs to be a little bit of an Aaron Rodgers statement as the start of a class like this. Relax. Relax. Here's five reasons why we go crazy. First, we read Revelation like a scientist when more accurately it speaks in the language of an artist. We just need to, we just need to know the influence of science in the modern mind. Literally, the invention of watches and clocks changed the world. Everything could be measured. And I don't think we've, ever, we've never lived without it being measured. We've never, we've never tasted that. But historians and social scientists and philosophers talk about one of the most radical changes that ever hit the world was when things could be measured. And if you've ever lived in a non-measured culture, you are totally frustrated. Uh, we, we, had, we had friends in Scotland that lived in a non-measured world, which means it was about people, not about process. And Americans are process freaks. Like we say we're showing up, we're showing up. We have a schedule. I, I, I got to go. I remember one of the guys I did a PhD with, I mean, total nerd. Unlike me, he was a total nerd. He literally had 15-minute increments set on his little, one of those nerdy little square watch things he would wear. 15-minute increments. So it would be like lunchtime, and we're like eating there, and we're like, hey, hey. You know, we're, like, look, we're like talking about something on ESPN, and all of a sudden they go, beep, 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 beep. i got to go. And he'd like walk around and go. I was like, dude, we're in the middle of a conversation. Like you were in the middle of a sandwich. Like calm down. Beep, 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 beep. He's got to go to something. I mean, everything was 15 minutes. I mean, everything was structured. We don't realize how that's changed us. And so because of modern scientific approach to the world, which is dominated clearly since the University of Berlin, 1803, so we're talking over two centuries, 
That's how we evaluate everything. Well, now we're talking about a book that was actually written before all that. Well, the God who likes to speak in ways that you can't measure glory. How do you measure the glory of God? You got a measuring tape for that? Do you have a continent that, that can hold that? Like, do you think the earth can hold the glory of God? How about the Milky Way? So measure it for me. But notice, when people get to the book, they want to measure things, like when, like, like how, how's that going to be? Like, that's measurement talk. That's not revelation. Like, this isn't a lab with a, with a microscope. We, we think in facts, the revelation speaks in forms. We, we think in modern categories, revelation speaks in ancient. We think linear. Revelation speaks circularly. Good friend of mine was a circular thinker. I was always trying to track what he said because I was taught to speak and listen to linear speakers. He was a circular speaker. So he'd start a topic here, bloop, jump over here, bloop, over here. I'm like, what are you talking about? What's well, obvious? But once he got to the whole thing, I'm like, oh, you're just like jumping around all over the place. Dude, I'm German and Swedish. Help me out. Revelation seeks to align my imagination with what is most true. Now, again, people hear the word imagination, they think fake. But think of imagination as a muscle that holds things together. What's a muscle do in the body, right? It helps all the parts, the, 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 the tissue, the tendons. It connects the, these bones. Without any of that, they just kind of flop around, right? We just collapse to the ground. But the muscles and the flesh part holds it all together so it can be moved and used rightly. The imagination is an important theological church word. It's how we connect what is true in the supernatural to the natural realm. It's how we imagine God's glory in the physical realm. So imagination is an important thing. So you're not going to be surprised that the book that will require the biggest imagination stretch is going to be Revelation when it's talking about things that aren't even happening yet. And about things that go beyond description. Like there's no words that fully describe it. No language can contain it because it's the imagination. So if you're trying to kind of translate everything into some kind of measurable component, then the very first verse of Revelation you're reading wrongly. Hey, second, second reason, we think Revelation speaks about the future when primarily it speaks about the present. What is to come versus what really is. It, it, it speaks not about the end times per se, but about the present from the perspective of the end times. But that is so important to get. Like it's not just telling you about the end times per se, even though obviously there's things about the end it addresses. But it ultimately is giving you spectacles to see now in reality, in relationship to then. To see the already in its completed form, even if it's not yet. That's so important to get. It's going to the end of the story. And it's shouting to you from the end of the story, hey, I know you're not there yet, but let me tell you this, dude, God rocks. Like, you are good. No big deal. That's going to think in a lot of ways. But let me, let me tell you right now, from where I'm at, this rocks. Now rejoice in that 
and hold fast because God dominates this. Like, you are good. And from where we're like, dude, this feels like overwhelming power. It's like you hear this voice from, that other, from the far end. Seriously, he's got this. Like, you can literally just start giggling and laughing right now because they got nothing on you. That's how big God is. You see, so it's not as much about the end, but about the present in light of the end. That's, that's really important. That, that's what hurt me so much about this sweet young lady who was so scared of the book that was actually supposed to take away her fears. Because she was just thinking it's going to be like, yeah, like, like a blood moon, right? And I'm going to have rapture and about my mom. And I get, I get, calm down. Little Aaron Rodgers here, relax. Wish, maybe he should have said that back in 2011 or whenever I met with her. Relax. It's about seeing the present in light of the end. Do you think this book was meaningless to people 2,000 years ago? How would this be for encouragement? I'm going to write you a book, pastoral care. This has nothing to do with your reality. Christians in 2,000 years will be totally benefited by this. You're being slaughtered now, but just imagine how good it will be for them. Like, was that really God's intentions? Like, he's really writing this book only for a one generation of people at the very end of history? Like, is that really what his intention is? Like, I think how silly that would be just kind of at a common sense level. Did God write the book only to be actually useful for people for whom they're going through it? Or did he write this book to give them a perspective of the present in light of the end? That's the accurate. Third thing, why people go so crazy over this, we, we treat the book of Revelation like a secret code when, in the, when, in act, when it actually gives a sacred lens to God's people. Here's where I'm going to give you just a summary of what later times we're going to spend time doing. Let me give you four reading pictures that describe two very different approaches for interpreting Revelation. We'll get to this in detail. You might walk away like, man, he stopped. What's up? I'm going to Aaron Rodgers you all day. Relax. I'll get to this. But I'm guessing column one is where 99.9% of you sit in regard to how you read the book. And I'm going to encourage you to read it like column two. So it's the code approach versus the lens approach. Code, you're trying to decipher. Locust, locust. Are we talking hel uh, Apache helicopters, right? I mean, that's what the Left Behind series would say. By the way, Left Behind series, code approach. Left Behind series is column one. Code. Translated. Measurement. Science. Figure what is it? What, what, what nation is that? Is that? I mean, I've literally got, I, I've been collecting these over the years, books that have different predictions, right, about who the Antichrist, I got one book with literally Saddam Hussein's picture on the front. Convinced by a lovely, I knew the guy, Moody Bible Institute professor, this was the Antichrist. That was inaccurate. And I've got probably four or five different books with different, selections of people, different countries, different this and that, etc. That's the code approach. It's trying to decipher the text like it's a secret code versus the lens approach, which is discerning, like spectacles, like help me see the world as it truly is. Like, God, I need to know that you're big and you're huge, but all I feel is the overpowering weight of, of pagan forces and evil Help me see the world as it truly is. Oh, I see it now. 
How about crystal ball versus x-ray? Crystal ball is prediction. When is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? When is this going to happen? New world order, right? What about the vaccine uh, as part of the mark of the beast? All common theories going on right now. That's the crystal ball approach. Trying to find in Ezekiel or Daniel other books that have some apocalyptic, similar genre in Revelation, right? Trying to find out where is this going to be? That's the prediction approach. Crystal ball versus x-ray. Perspective. Give me perspective. Remember that analogy I gave? Like somebody shouting from the end, hey, I made it all the way through. Dude, God is huge. I'm not exactly sure what you're facing right now or what it's going to be, but I can just tell you this. God is big. You're good. How about map, one-to-one correspondence versus compass? A map is like, give me this, give me that. I drove with my 70-some-year-old uncle all the way to New Mexico two years ago, and I'm using GPS. He's like, what? GPS, what? That's ridiculous. Give me a good old map. He's got this massive map. Oh, I'm blocking half my view. He's like, well, look at this, look at this road here. I mean, the map was from like 1968. Like, are these roads the same? Well, we'll figure it out. Versus like, he just hated like, well, what's the next road? I don't know. It just says keep on this one for 1.4 miles. What? But we kind of treat Revelation like a one-to-one correspondence. Again, notice the deciphering prediction, one-to-one correspondence versus orientation to true north. Give me direction. What's it look like to be faithful in a fallen and broken world? It's this way. Last one is fear versus hope. That first column caused that student of mine in that class to be scared. You know what Revelation was supposed to do? It was supposed to give you hope. When my little kids, I, one of our kids was, would be, be more scared than the others at night, and we tried to talk through the options. Well, you know what I mean? Mom's here. Dad's here. All these little what ifs. Well, what if, I mean, Dad, you're a big guy. What if they're bigger than you? I, could, I mean, it could be. It could be more of them. But then, but then, then the God factor. God is so big. Now there, I'm, I'm asking this little kid to use that imagination to connect the supernatural to the natural. And it wasn't even with an obvious, there's a horde of barbarians coming into the house, right? Or more like a T-Rex is probably the greater fear, right? Like, what if there's T-Rexes in Rockton? And well, but it was just more this, but if you, can, if you know what's ultimately true, Like, God is that big. Nothing happens outside of his purposeful control. Can you trust that? I don't know. Can you trust that? Uh, I'll try. Let's pray to see if you can trust that. Okay, you're not trusting in mommy or daddy. You're trusting in God. That's what Revelation is trying to say. God the Father, in his last communication in his canonical Bible, gathers near you before you live this Christian life, where others before you have gone have been slaughtered for their faith, crucified upside down, uh, you name it, right? We're like literally Christians, and then right now in other countries are literally being persecuted right now. You know what God just says to you? He goes, dude, I'm with you. There is nothing that's going to happen to you that's outside of my control, and I will crush. Here's my word on this. I will crush all the enemies who oppose you. When they oppose you, they oppose me. That's what Revelation is saying. It's not saying, well, now on this Thursday, here's what you're going to face. It doesn't say that. Or here's what's going to happen in your country with some governmental... It doesn't say that. It just says, 
Look up, look at me, look at me. Look in my eyes. Do you see what I'm saying to you? I am bigger. I have won. Death has been defeated. Now, when you're walking through life, you don't look at that. You just look at me. You just look at me. Just look at me. I'm right there. End of Bible. That's how it ends. Now, that is beautiful. That's powerful. And if you're trying to, if you're looking, like, if you're looking around and like this the whole time, like, God's like, whoa, 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 whoa right here. Like, look at me. What, what are you looking over there for? Like, look at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure out if that, you know, if that guy or this guy or that. Oh, did you see that government thing? Oh, did you see that law? Look at me. Like, look at me. Why are you looking all over there? Look at me. The, uh, maybe especially in America, I would say, we, we, we've stopped just looking at God in the book of Revelation. That's the fourth. We read Revelation as if it were about us when it is primarily about God. When, when we read it as a code, we look for us. Hey, is that America? Is that, is that Iran there? Is that, is that Israel? Like, is, is that Russia? That was the big one in the you know, a generation. That's Russia. I think that's Russia. There's a bear. Is that Russia? Iraq? Is that, is that in the Bible? Like, we think it's, about, I think it's our story. Oh, and by the way, every Christian before you did the same thing, like for the Luther, there's the Pope. For the persecutions, there's the Muslims. But we read his lens, we see it about God. <laughs> you may not recognize this, but at the end of the book of Acts, or sorry, the end of chapter 7 in the book of Acts, there's a guy named Stephen. He's about to get slaughtered for his faith. You familiar with that story? And it's easy to miss. But they're basically on his trial. They question him and they say, okay, wait, wait. are these things true? Like, what do you say for yourself? And he gives this amazing sermon. Like, it's beautiful. It's probably, it summarizes the whole biblical story in many ways, up to Christ. Now listen to this, though. Now this, this, chapter 7 in Acts, verses 54 to 60, this is a beautiful example of what Revelation is showing. I'm going to read Acts 7, 54 and following. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged. He didn't convince them. And they ground their teeth at him. How mad you got to be when you're like grinding your teeth? Like totally going against Dennis' rules here. They were mad. Get this. But he, listen to this, listen to this. Full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. I cannot read this without getting emotional every time. Because, listen to this, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And you're like, what did he see? Like, was it a dog? Like, no, you're missing it. Don't decode. He was given a lens, not a code to decipher. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why is that important? Because he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he sits on the throne. Who's in charge of that moment? And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened. By the way, that's exactly what Revelation opens up with, just so you know. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, the Apostle Paul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out. Like in the midst of persecution, he's seeing something. Here's what he says. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. That is revelation. Now, did it tell him anything about how many stones would be thrown? How about the size of the stones? How about, a, you know, they're going to take you out of the city, not in the city? That's important for you to know. Did it give any scientific measurement details? Or did it say, look at me. Hey, look at me. Look me in the eye. Look at me. Who reigns? Like, who reigns? Who created all this? I totally got you. Your last act of obedience to King Jesus is to give up your physical body. Do so willingly, my child. But let you, let, let you know this. Your resurrected body is totally secure in my power. So look at me. Look at me. That is what Revelation is. That's a whole book of what the end of chapter 7 in Acts just gives you a little glimpse. Isn't that beautiful? Last reason, I think this is, maybe this is me psychologizing our American evangelical culture a little bit, but the last reason is we worship the cultural idol of control. We do. We are control freaks. And I want to tell you, it seeps into how you use the Bible, arguably how you even use God. You like to know. How can I prepare for the future? How can I focus on the future? I gotta be re- you got to be ready, right? I mean, you can't watch a football game without seven or 18 retirement commercials. Why? Because they know you want control. you got to have the right medicine and the right health control and the uh, health coverage and insurance. And, I mean, they know this. We are, we are literally addicted to control. And if we use Revelation as a means of getting more control, we've missed it. See, here's the thing. You're never in control. It's actually about giving up control, not claiming it. Yeah, yeah, if I, if I know, I, I, I can avoid the, I, if I know who it is, I mean, we can, well, you have no control. Only God does. So we can relax. Here's the second thing I want to say today. We can relax about our interpretation of Revelation when we see it in its proper doctrinal perspective That's really, really important, and I want to give some rankings of doctrines so we're allowed to agree to disagree about certain things and we don't have to freak out because we don't do well at that. Like in today's age, we're like, if we disagree on one little thing, we we, we fight over that. Like it's the end of the world. Like we can disagree about certain things. Like you can totally be a Christian and disagree about certain political things and be in the same church and sing Amazing Grace together like we did first service today. You can disagree about stuff. You can say, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, I really am sure about that. Hey, great, you want to have lunch after church? Like, that's okay. Instead, what we do is we fight. It's like, again, is it that control thing? Is it I only align with my political allegiance? Like, churches are becoming more and more like that. Churches literally now, statisticians say this guy named Ryan Burge has written a book on this that has been helpful for me. Literally, churches now will align more based upon political alignment than theological. So you're going to have your Democratic church, you're going to have your Republican church, you're going to have your moderate church. It, 
The doctrinal statements might all agree, but they're not comfortable being together if they disagree about guns or healthcare or whatever the issue may be, right? Like, that's totally missed the rankings of things. That's missing it. My daughter is going across the street on her bike, and she drops something out of her basket, and she stops her bike in the middle of the road because she has to get this marker or whatever it was. And I pull it aside and say, really? Like a marker? I'll buy you 10 markers. Let, let whatever is going to crush the marker crush the marker, not you. Like you get out of the road, go ahead and get a brother killed, but not you. Like the brothers are expendable, not you. The marker is way less important than you. Like, can we rate those? I rank those. I'm ranking those. I'm like, my daughter, a marker. My daughter, I'm not a hard debate, right? Like, it's a marker. Oh, yeah. I just didn't want to lose her. I agree. I just don't want to lose you. Like, so if we can rank things like markers and the life of a child, what about doctrine? Here's a, th- this is why, by the way, that every tennis court I've ever played at has a fence around it. You ever played tennis in a court that didn't have a fence? You're not going to play very long. Why do they put a fence around a tennis court? Because no matter who you're playing, when that ball rolls 150 feet past the court, you just plain get tired of going to chase that thing. They put, a, they put it around the tennis court so that there's a level of control. There's, there's a stop. There's a backstop behind a baseball diamond. Why? So you're not just chasing a ball forever every time the catcher misses it or it's foul tip back. So we have a backstop and we have a fence around the Bible as well that helps us know what are the most important things. All right, why are there different interpretations? You could even say, well, why do we have to disagree? Well, here Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mere dimly but then we will see face to face. Like, that's really important to know. Like, we are looking through a dim window. You just cannot make it out. You can't see it. In fact, that's a great analogy of what the book of Revelation shows. That's the analogy I'm going to end with this morning. When I went to this castle cathedral in Scotland, and they wouldn't let you in the building, but there were windows you could look around, but they were so old and even colored that all I could see was just little glimpses through the window. I couldn't see it all. But that's us now. Like right now, we just don't see it clearly. That's why Christians disagree about some things and why the Bible doesn't even spend a ton of time on things that we might want to know more about, but it does spend time on the majors. Most Christians will disagree about secondary issues, and all Christians arguably are going to be wrong about something. And every Christian and every church must put their biblical convictions into practice with integrity and humility. And I'll give you examples of that in a minute. Therefore, it's important to understand the differences between doctrines. Not all doctrines are of equal importance. So here's, here's a ranking. We could call first-rank doctrines are essential doctrines. And they're essential, why? Because they're connected to the gospel. Like, if you're wrong on this, big problem. So, like, an example would be the deity of Christ. Like, if you're wrong on the deity of Christ, you're wrong on basically everything. Like, you could be totally right on the ESV is the best Bible translation. Well, that's great. Here's the problem. Like, you just miss Jesus. Like, that's like choosing, well, that's, that's, I should, it'd be like me saying to my daughter, forget your life, get the marker. Like, your life is totally unimportant. I want you to dive 
for that marker. Don't even take your helmet off before you dive. Save the marker. Like, that would be ridiculous. So that's that's first rank issue, a gospel issue. That's essential. We can't disagree about those. Now, here's the second, and this is where we start to see differing churches and approaches. Second-rate doctrines are urgent, not for the gospel, but for the health and practice of the church. And, and because of that, they can frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of local church. Probably one of my best friends, Darian Lockett. When I was installed here as senior pastor in 2014, Darian Lockett was the one who did the sermon, he along with John Crocker. Darren Luckett is a close brother of mine, a former good old Southern Baptist from Kansas who now is a conservative Presbyterian. I think on, mo- I mean, he and I have actually written a book together on biblical theology. We worked together numerous years. We studied together in Scotland. I, t- I would trust him with my own children in every way, but we disagree on two things, baptism and congregationalism. That's it. Everything else, we couldn't agree more. But he wants to baptize my babies, and I won't let him baptize my babies. He thinks Presbyterianism is the better form of church government. I think Congregationalism is a better form of church government. Now, is this guy going to heaven? If he's going to heaven, if I'm going to heaven, he's going to heaven. Let me say it that strongly. Do I tr- would I trust my life to this guy? Totally. Is he a gifted, brilliant exegete? Absolutely. He's a PhD in New Testament, same school I studied at. The guy is super bright. But on that particular issue, I think he's wrong. And that means literally if he lived in the same town I did, we would go to different churches because he would go to a church that's Presbyterian, and I would go to a church that's congregational. He would go to a church that does infant baptism. I'd go to a church that does believers or credo baptism. Now, that's a really small difference, but it changes how you do church. It does. It's second issue. It's second order. It's a second rank doctrine. You don't have to divide over it. You might not, like we might, do, might not do baptism the same, but the guy can totally come and literally as he did almost seven years ago and preach right here to you. But that's why you have Presbyterian churches and you have evangelical free churches. That's why. That's second rank. That's not a gospel issue. That's a church issue. Third rank doctrines are It's not essential. They're not even urgent for like what you're doing as Christians. They're just important to Christian theology. But they're not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. And if I could give you an example, I would say it is eschatology. Here we go. That's what this class is about. So realize where we're at. We're not even talking about first-rank issues or second-rank issues. We're talking about third-rank issues. Like, is there a secret rapture of the church or is there not? Third rank. We have people in this church, members in this church that hold both views. And there's even other views that people hold. If you're a member of this church because you believe in this church, you're probably okay with congregationalism, even if you wouldn't want to have to spell it or define it. And you're probably okay with believer's baptism, even if you wouldn't necessarily know a different option or how to make a biblical case for it. Right, but, but you're okay with that. And clearly, if you're a member of this church, you believe in the deity of Jesus because that's required. But do we, in a membership interview with elders, say, now where are you at with the millennium? We don't. Do we ask you about what's your view on speaking in tongues? Nope. Third rank. 
Do, do we ask you about certain things regarding uh, certain even gender roles or specific things like that? Nope, none of that ever comes up. And there's just a whole ton of things that are actually important for theology that are good issues to talk about that we can disagree on. And that is so important for this class. Because I am going to present a view of Revelation that is likely different than what most of you have ever been taught. And I want to say that that's okay. It also means, because it's third rank, I could be wrong. I could even change my mind in a few years. In fact, I have changed my mind. I probably grew up, like most American evangelicals, with the view that most of you have. And then I changed my mind to a different position, which is quite common. There's a great scholar named Tom Schreiner. He's at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The guy is a, just a gifted teacher of God's Word. I remember I had dinner with him. This is probably 10 years ago. And somebody at this dinner table asked him about his view on premillennialism versus amillennialism. If you don't know what those are, that's, oh, you're probably better for it if you don't. Uh, but he, as he goes, yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure where I sit on that. I, I keep swapping back and forth. And I, I, I got so comfortable hearing that because this guy knows more than I, I feel like I will probably ever know. It's kind of, I feel like he knows something about everything. And literally on this third rank issue, he's still like, I just keep swinging one year, I feel like, ah, I think I'm pre-mill. The next year, yeah, I, I, I think I'm on-mill. He goes, I, I even preached through Revelation to my church, and I switched twice in the middle of the sermon series. <laughs> now, this guy would take literally the guillotine over the deity of Christ. This guy literally believes and has written on the importance of Believer's baptism and congregationalism. I mean, he fights for that. And then he comes to this third rank issue. He's like, I keep switching. I, don't even, I, don't, I keep switching sides. I, I don't even know. Is it because he doesn't think it's important? Not at all. It's because the more you move down the line of rank, the less information there is. The less God reveals. The more you're having to make connections across the whole Bible, which means it's not as easy. The deity of Christ, if you miss that, you're missing every book of the Bible. But third rank issues, that gets a little complex. In fact, the whole debate over ah or premillennialism is based primarily on one passage at the end of Revelation in a book full of symbols and imagery. One text, that's it. Fourth rank doctrines are quite simply unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. They should have no distinction. They shouldn't affect us in any way. Literally, they come down to preference. And that would be things like, do you prefer hymns or do you prefer contemporary worship? Even though, to be fair, I bet more Christians split over this than they do over the higher ranks. And I can guarantee you that I get more complaints or suggestions about this than I ever get about, are you honoring Christ enough in your preaching? Is that Sunday school teacher honoring Christ enough in your preaching? I'm worried that the church doesn't understand the importance of congregationalism. Or I'm, I'm just saying if you want to get the second rank issues, right? Like You would think that those would be the ones like, hey, I know it's second rank, but we got to really be teaching people about con- believers' baptism and congregationalism. Like, we gotta, no, it's usually fourth rank issues that get the most attention even though it's nothing to do with what we should separate or not be together or things like that. All right, before, before I, before I we, we've got, uh, yeah, we're basically about to be done, aren't we? Am I supposed to be done at 10.30? 
What's that? That's right. Who works here? Not me, I guess. <laughs> Let me end with this. I wish I had more time. I get, uh, Revelation shows, give me three minutes, and, and then I'm going to kick you out. We'll pull the fire alarm, whatever you have to do. Revelation shows the world, this is so important, it shows the world as God's temple and invites us to look through its stained glass windows. That is so important. Like, when you read the structure of the world in Revelation, guess what it looks like? It looks like a temple. That's a big deal. Because guess who's there? God is. In fact, to be honest with you, the temple in the Old Testament is actually copying the blueprint from what the world will look like one day. Isn't that beautiful? We went to this castle cathedral. Laura and I did. We got this we got this historic Scotland pass when we were there. I think it was our last year. And we got to visit all these various places. And we went to this one that's literally being supported by pillars on the outside because it was like a 1,000 years old. And some of the windows weren't as 1,000 years old. The walls were. But some of the windows were 500 years old. And some of them had a kind of a fading stained glass, but all of them, old school windows, were not super clear. And all we could do was walk around the building and look in. We couldn't go in the building, we could walk around and look in. That is totally what the book of Revelation does. And listen to this. Let me give you the windows. Imagine Revelation giving you five windows. And we'll close with this. Here's window run. You look through and who do you see? You see Christ, the Savior. And what is he doing? He is sitting in the middle of his churches. How beautiful is that? And then you walk and you look into window two. And what do you see? You see Christ, the Lamb. And he's sitting on the throne of the world. Like he totally dominates now, again, you're, you're like, hey, can I go talk to him or can I ask questions? Or like, is that thrown in Israel or is it in D.C.? Like, where, it doesn't, it, again, pull decoding out. It's just giving you images. Christ is with his people. He's redeemed them. Christ is with his people. He's the reigning king. Window three, you see Christ, the conqueror, crushing all his enemies. So, by the way, I'm giving you text at the end of these notes. That, that, that's where it talks about this. I'm just summarizing it in like eight words. Window three is Christ. He's crushing all your and his enemies. Window four, Christ the judge, extending his holiness throughout creation. He's redeeming it. He's healing. That's why it's called renewed creation. And window five, Christ the bridegroom, dwelling with his people in the new creation. Oh, does that scare you? Does it make you nervous? Do you not want to talk about it anymore? Or are you just getting to see a little bit of what Stephen saw? Right before his death, he, the clouds opened up, and he got to see what was ultimately true. And it so impacted them that literally before he died, he could say, Father, they don't even know what they're doing. I pray that they know your grace in some way. That is the book of Revelation. Father, thanks for our time together and thanks for your word which teaches us and corrects us, directs us. Help us to rightly see this text as you wrote it to give us hope and not fear, to give us a compass, to give us perspective and a lens for discernment for the world in which we live. And Father, where we have failed to rightly teach this where we have bought into strange conspiracies rather than Christ. Correct us. 
and give us encouragement in a day where we need a little bit of what Stephen saw to give us hope in our difficult day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.